0: Hello baseball fans and welcome to Sully Baseball Daily, the podcast where we talk about baseball 365 days a year, unless it's a leap year and then we're going to do another one. I've been doing this every single day since October 24th, 2012, and it's now the 21st day of May, 2016. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this from the Sullivan Baseball Studio in Palo Alto, California, the birthplace of Oakland A's manager, Bob Melvin, and just down the 101 from AT&T Park, the home of the San Francisco Giants. Let me tell you what I'm going to do today, and let me explain to you a little bit what's going on in this podcast. Uh, As you know, I do 365 podcast. This year I'm doing 366 because there was a leap year. I also produce another podcast, which is called Real Crime Profile. I'm not on the show, but I am, I produce the show, I edit the show, and it is a program where it's basically a roundtable discussion about crime shows and, and real crime from the point of view of three very interesting people. Laura Richards, who is a real crime profiler with a background from the FBI and New Scotland Yard. Jim Clemente, who is a former FBI profiler and now a writer and producer on the CBS show Criminal Minds. And that show's casting director, Lisa Zambetti, whose idea this podcast was, who's the casting director of Criminal Minds, also happens to be Mrs. Sully. And at one point, Lisa told me that Jim Clemente's father once played baseball, not in the major leagues, but was, was a baseball player. And I talked to Jim about that, and it turns out that his father, who grew up in the Bronx not far from Yankee Stadium during the DiMaggio years, was indeed a semi-pro player, someone who played in college, and at one point was offered a chance to play in the minor leagues, and I thought it would be interesting to sit down and have a conversation with him about rooting for the Yankees during those glory years, and also a little bit of what it meant to be a semi-pro player at that time, and to get that offer from the Pittsburgh Pirates organization. So I brought Pete Clemente, former pitcher, semi-pro pitcher, who actually faced, as he mentions later on in the interview, some f- familiar names of future major leaguers. So here's a little bit of my conversation with Pete Clemente.
1: I was born in 29, about six blocks from Yankee Stadium in the Bronx. I guess I started going to games when I was about, well, the first game I ever saw, my father took me over to the Polo Grounds to see the Giants play the Phillies. Carl Hubble was pitching for the Giants. Wow. And the Phillies won the game 6 0. <laughs> so I decided that day that I definitely was not going to be a Giant fan.
2: <laughs>
1: and Polo Grounds was right across the river from uh, Yankee Stadium. And when I was born, of course, Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth were mm-hmm. baseball.
2: <laughs> uh,
1: but unfortunately, by the time I was. Old enough to get into the stadium, they were both uh, out of baseball, but they left some pretty good guys behind them, like Joe DiMaggio and Tommy Hendrick, Lefty Gomez, Red Ruffing, and all the rest.
2: I was I was about to say you you didn't get you didn't get ripped off, you got to see DiMaggio in his prime.
1: Oh well, his entire career. Yeah, he kind of uh, took over, and people. Almost immediately, we're, we're not really forgetting about Ruth and Gehrig, but uh, we're in a new mindset, you know. There's no more Ruth and Garrick, but now we've got you, DiMaggio. And the interesting thing back then, DiMaggio had made the mistake of marrying a movie actress yeah. named Dorothy, Dorothy Arnold. Mm-hmm. And. It lasted probably about a year, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. He divorced her. The, in, the reason I mention this is he was damn near run out of New York because he had the audacity to go get a divorce. Wow. And the time changed.
2: And the, yeah. I, the, the idea of Joe DiMaggio being run out of New York is just so... Exactly. It, it's... Uh, so against what people think of. They think of it as this this God that even Hemingway wrote about.
1: Yeah, but even God can't, couldn't get a divorce in those days. <laughs> he was forgiven, and fortunately he stayed on and did a pretty good job. But uh, I can recall back in the early days, the Yankees had a couple of really good pitches. One was Lefty Gomez, and the other one was Red Ruffing. Right. Red Ruffing was a big Indian, American Indian, mm-hmm. a huge guy, and he was a right-hander. And of course, Lefty Gomez was a left-hander, a skinny little guy. But the thing about uh, Gomez, they called him crazy. Gomez would be on the mound, and then all of a sudden you'd hear the sound of an airplane engine. Everything stops. Gomez puts his hands on his belt looks up towards LaGuardia Field and waits to see the airplane go by. <laughs> and a two-or-four-prop airplane would fly over know, take about a minute and a half for it to appear and disappear. Plane's gone, back on the mound and pitching. him. <laughs> but that, that gives you an idea of the era Okay, airplanes were not going by every two seconds. But Gomez was a hell of a good pitcher, but he could only last seven innings. But fortunately, they had a guy named Johnny Murphy, Murphy, who, who, as far as I'm concerned, was the Yankee bullpen. Whenever a pitcher didn't finish a game, it was Murphy that came in and finished it.
2: Johnny Murphy was, uh, I have his info up here, he was several years as an all-star and led the league in saves many, many times, uh, very seldom used as a starter. And he was from New York. He was from New York City uh-huh. and went to Fordham. See, I didn't know that. Oh, look he at that. Was, I just, I, I pulled not his... Not from uh, New York State. There you go.
1: <laughs> Every time I went to see Gomez pitch, mm-hmm. I knew I was going to see Johnny
2: Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> First team to ever win four straight World Series.
1: And in those days, the number you wore was your spot in the lineup. Right. So Frankie Crosetti was a shortstop. He was number one. Red Rolf played third. He was number two. Rolf was a hell of a good bunter. He was a left-handed batter. Mm-hmm. And he would put on displays <clears throat> during batting practice. And uh, one of the guys would lay a handkerchief on the grass, maybe about 20, 25 feet from home plate, about two or three feet from the third baseline. And Rolf, they'd throw balls into Rolf, and he'd hit that handkerchief three times out of four. Mm -hmm. And uh, right fielder at the time was uh, Selkirk, George Selkirk, twinkle toes. Mm -hmm. DiMaggio was fourth. Charlie Keller was fifth. Joe Gordon played second. He was sixth. Bill Dickey was a catcher. He played seventh. Right. He seventh.
2: In those years when they won the four straight World Series, uh, the first two times they beat the Giants in the World Series, so uh-huh. you should feel very happy that you had the chance to pick the Giants or the Yankees, and you wound up picking right. You found you picked well, uh, the right team. Well,
1: no question in my mind after that six-zero beating. By- <laughs> the Phillies were a were a bad team. Right, uh, and Carl Hubbell was, you know, Hall of, of New York as far as a pitcher was concerned. Yeah, and when they beat him six nothing, I said that's it. <laughs> I used to go for a quarter, you could get into the bleachers.
2: The At patient, Yankee Stadium or the Polo Grounds?
1: No, Yankee Stadium. No, I went to the Polo Grounds once.
2: Oh, six-nothing. really? You, you yeah, didn't even watched. go. Even after you picked the Yankees, you, you didn't. You didn't go just as a fan. You, no, no, no. Uh, just because I'm, I'm thinking about that era. Do you remember the when Lou Gehrig he had to retire because of the disease? Do you remember that and, and and how that affected everyone on the team?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, he was one day he was everything. The next day he was gone. Just couldn't do anything. I think if he were around today, the way these guys are today, he'd probably have tried to stick it out. Yeah. It just got worse and worse and worse until finally one day someone would convince him that it's time to go. What they had to do for Joe DiMaggio with his heel spurs was just unbelievable. And I've had heel spurs, so I know exactly what the pain was that, that that guy was going through every day. Yet he'd be out there, and one day he was being interviewed. The game they won about twelve to one or something like that. The fella asked him, "Well, Joe, you know, I noticed that on this play in the seventh inning, you ran like hell to catch that ball. Uh, you're winning by ten runs, but why, with all the pain that you have, you go racing after that ball and you have to catch it?" His answer was, well, there may be one kid sitting in the stands who would never been to a baseball game, and he sees me out there, and he's, he sees me go after a ball and then decide it's too much for me, I'm not going to try hard enough. He said, I could wreck that kid's entire life doing something like that. And that was it. That was, that's what drove him. Mickey Mantle used to take them a half hour. To tape up his, his ankles every game. Yeah,
2: yeah, you're right. A half
1: hour tape job. Yeah.
2: And yet yeah. they still almost ran Dimaggio out of town for getting a divorce.
1: Well, that was that was much earlier than the, than the heel spurs.
2: Right, right. <laughs> By just, that
1: uh... time, he could have divorced fifteen women.
2: <laughs> One of the things I would love to have witnessed, just as a as a fan, was the Dimaggio streak the the fifty six game streak yeah. that just I think of all the records that could fall I think that has to be the hardest one not you know because you can hit home runs you can get hits or strikeouts or whatever but to do it every single day is unbelievable and the thing that I find amazing about the streak was. It really was 57 games because in the middle of the streak was the All-Star game, and he got a hit in the All-Star game, but that doesn't count because it wasn't a regular season oh, game.
1: Yeah, and the, the day that the streak ended, they were playing in Cleveland. Uh, Kenny Keltner was the third baseman. He was robbed of two extra base hits by Keltner.
2: As a fan and as a young fan at that time, what was that, What was the anticipation? And the, the, the You must have been around 10 years old around then. Do you have any memories of that, or what, what was that like?
1: Uh, like I say, they were playing all-day games then. But I just race home, jump on the bed with my radio, and that's it.
2: <laughs> Did you um, ever go to any World Series games?
1: Yeah, in fact, I think it was 42. 42, two
2: brothers, that, that year they lost to the Cardinals that year. Cardinals,
1: 42. yeah. We yeah. are sitting in the third deck in left field around the fifth of sixth inning these three flying fortresses, the four-engine jobs.
2: Wow, yeah.
1: Come flying from right field to left field. Mm-hmm. And this one guy dipped way to hell down. you got a four-engine bomber. He's dipping down into the stadium and up again. But I tell you, he was aiming right at us. <laughs>
2: Was that like a flying formation? What what, was that?
1: Yeah, the three of them were flying in formation. Okay. Just going over the stadium. But the lead guy just decided to dip down.
2: Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I was trying to figure out. You
1: know, it wasn't dangerous, but it could have been. Yeah, And he pulled out. And the next day, the mayor was raising all kinds of hell about it. I don't think anything ever happened
2: you you had mentioned that you were not a uh, a giant fan because of, uh, you know, Carl Hubble had a bad day and therefore you decided to be a Yankee fan. Uh, when, you were, when, you, when you were growing up, was there, I, I mean, I have always heard about the great rivalries between, like, Dodger fan and giant fan, Yankee fans, and that they're all kind of mingled up together there. Was it... Was it intense or was it just sort of something sort of playful on the schoolyard? Or did you even, were people in your neighborhood like all Yankee fans or all Giant fans? Was that how it worked?
1: Well, we in the Bronx, as far as we were concerned, there was only one New York team. (laughs) And the guys in Brooklyn around Ebbets Field felt the same way about their team.
2: Right. Right.
1: And the good thing about that was that we always beat them.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so never had a problem much with the Dodgers. Yeah. But uh, some years ago, I I kind of hooked up with Don Newcomb from the right. Dodgers. I was running an insurance company claims department. I brought him in uh, as a speaker for one of our uh, claims. Conferences, A motivational speaker, pretty much. He could do a hell of a job. He had a hell of a story to tell. So I kind of uh, changed my tune about the Dodgers after that. But that
2: was, <laughs> it was years later.
1: Years late. after the Dodgers moved to LA.
2: I mean, I've met people yeah. who have been big fans of the big of baseball at the time, but you actually turned it around and, and played professional ball for a period of time. Now, th- there was no draft back then, and they didn't go, they didn't go oh, through no. picks the way. So how, how did you get involved in minor league professional baseball?
1: Yeah, I was in high school, and I played high school ball. Which high school? Uh, uh, Cardinal Hayes, which okay. is about four blocks from Yankee Stadium. I played the outfield in high school because I wanted to pitch on weekends, and on weekends, we had a team, a neighborhood team. Uh, in those days, they were called semi-pro teams. Uh, we didn't get paid specifically to play, but what it, what it was was you develop a fan base, and these guys would come out to your games on Saturday or Sunday, and they'd bet on, your, on, the, on the teams. When you win a game, if, say a guy puts 25 bucks on a game, which was in those days a hell of a lot of money, puts twenty five bucks on a on a game, and you pitch and you win. well, he might give you ten or fifteen bucks for that twenty five and you know it wasn't a lot of money, but to see a twenty dollar bill come in your direction was was something pretty good in those days. We had a team, and it, it was all just the neighborhood it was the neighborhood I lived in, and just to give you an idea. Our first baseman was a big kid, was 6'2", looked like Ozark Ike. In fact, we called him Ozark Ike. 6'2", broad-shouldered, about a 24-inch waist, and could hit a ball a mile. His name was Mauro Iacovello. The second baseman was a wiry young guy that was all over the field, Never miss a ground ball, you know, the whole works. And a pretty good hitter. His name was Chicky Perella. The shortstop who could give Derek Jeter a run for his money, but hit much better than Jeter, was Louis Rotundi. The third baseman, he was the oldest guy on the team. He was about 21. His name was Richie Vizzini. The left fielder, name was Charlie Arachi. The center fielder was the third baseman's brother, Johnny Vizzini. The right fielder was the coach's son, Vinny Tarantola. The catcher was about six two, weighed about two hundred <laughs> and ninety five pounds, didn't have a, an ounce of fat on his body. He was a bricklayer by trade. Andy Baroncelli. I pitched, had two brothers who also pitched, Johnny and Freddie Becari. We had a utility
0: infielder.
1: His name was Richie Klein. <laughs> Now, I haven't talked about this team probably in the last 20 years, Mm -hmm. but those names are so embedded in my head, they just automatically come back to me. In my last year in high school, I did uh, get an offer from the Pittsburgh Pirates. Oh, really? To join their farm team, which this is not not a prejudicial statement now, this is what it was called. Mm Mm-hmm. But their AAA farm team in Atlanta was called the Atlanta Crackers. Yeah, I,
2: I remember they Today. Yeah, you couldn't get away with that name today. But no, that's... that's.
1: Yeah. No, it was the Atlanta Crackers. And I was all set to go, but uh, I had two people in the house that uh, were not all set for me to go. and That was my mother and father. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you play baseball, you become a bum. You're going to college. Right. So I put my four years in college expecting that, well, when that's over, i will see what I can do. And a month after I got my diploma...
2: Where, where did you go?
1: I went to St. Mary's in uh, California. Okay. Outside of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. In a town called Moraga. And a month after I graduated, I was in the Army. And three years later, I was in Korea... And they signed a truce on my 24th birthday.
2: It's a good birthday present.
1: <laughs> well, it took three months for them to get the paperwork.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so that's my story, and that's, that was the end of my baseball career. I, cool. I went straight from high school to college, college to the Army. But I did. I was up at Devon's for a few months, and I played on the post team. I pitched one game, and I pitched a no-hitter.
2: Well, there you go. I need to ask you this question because, this is something that this really interests. This really is. This fascinates me, and and you have to bear with me because this is my baseball fandom coming out. But mm-hmm. you were offered a chance to play within the Pirates organization. Yeah. Um, now, at the time, they said they didn't have a draft. There was no like there was. They didn't have all these different elements that they have in play now. How do they? Who saw you? How did they contact you? And how did they? If I mean, did you know there were scouts following you? Like, how did that whole process work? No.
1: No. What it was was uh, there was uh, a friend of my father's, guy that worked for my father actually, (coughs) was a great baseball fan, and a friend of his was a scout, and the scout heard from my father's friend about me. Mm-hmm. And he did come. I wasn't aware of this at the time. I found out about this when I was in the Army. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but he had invited the scout down to see me, and I I pitched the game. The scout was there, and I never met him. But then right after that, shortly after that, is when I got word again through to my father's buddy that the pirates were interested and were, would like to send me down to uh, Atlanta and of course my father got the message and the uh, scout got the message from my father <laughs> and that was it
2: <laughs> and your dad wasn't when thrilled to be I got out, I was 24
1: and an old timer and yeah Too late to get back. You can't spend four years away from it and start from scratch at that age.
2: I can't help but wonder how many great players we never got to see because of World War II in Korea. You know that that there may have been people whose prime was spent either you know in the Pacific. More than enough to build both leagues. When you played uh, semi-pro, when you played, what was what was the name of your semi-pro team?
1: Williams Bridge Athletics. <laughs>
2: Williams Bridge Athletics, wow. And yeah. did, did you play with anybody that I may have heard of? Or did you play play with or against anyone who, who may have made it?
1: At St. Mary's, our first practice game every season was against major leaguers and Pacific Coast leaguers who you know were from around the San Francisco area. Mm-hmm. They would get together and come out and players, right? And uh, this guy Dempsey, who pitched for the San Francisco Seals, Billy Martin. Oh wow! Uh, I got to think to think of all of them, but there were at least seven or eight major leaguers would would be involved every year. And he, he was not my favorite. Oh, oh the other guy was uh, who played for Cal with Jackie Jensen.
2: Oh well, there. You go. As a Red Sox fan, I like hearing Jackie Jensen's name.
1: Well, the thing about Jackie was, if you threw him a fastball
0: mm-hmm.
1: about nose high or above, look out. <laughs> but if you throw him a fastball over the middle of the plate, belt high, he he doesn't even look at it.
2: <laughs> really.
1: And if you happen to throw him a ball that curves at three quarters of an inch, you've got him dead.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: the other thing about him is, no matter what you threw him, if you had a good center fielder, you're okay. Mm-hmm. He could not pull a ball, and even when he when he got into the majors, it, it just they never got him to a point where he could pull a ball right.
2: Wow! So there but, you go. There, there's. There's a, a great Yankee and a great Red Sock that you played against.: yeah. Thanks so much for your generosity and your time, and uh, oh, this was big a pleasure. This was just fun to just sort of talk and hear and hear these memories.
0: Okay. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Pete Clemente. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I love reminiscing with him and hearing about that era from his point of view. You know, baseball is about sharing memories, and it was a lot of fun sharing those with you. So, thanks so much, Pete. And while you're at it, check out Real Crime Profile on iTunes or on Stitcher or on SoundCloud. Just type in Real Crime Profile, and you'll find it. I'll also leave messages for links for it on SolidBaseball.wordpress.com and also on Twitter. You can check me out on Facebook. You can subscribe on iTunes. You can subscribe on Stitcher. Go to MLBReports.com for the up-to-date listings of who owns baseball. You can be old school. Send me an email at info at sullybaseball.com. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kalisky. Taking a walk down memory lane, this has been the Sully Baseball Daily Podcast for the 21st day of May 2016. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully.